Hi, welcome to the podcast. This is Jeff Rogers, and this is the most interesting people in the world. I have spent a lifetime trying to meet people that are interesting and cool, and as it turns out, I have met a lot of the most interesting people in the world, and I have one of the very most interesting people I've ever met with me, Jerry Levitan. Hey, Jeff. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Good. So, Jerry, we're going to talk about why you're interesting. Um, <laughs> and Well, I'd like to challenge that characterization. <laughs> Um, so let's go, we're going to start at the beginning of not your whole life, but we're going to start, I think around when you're 13, you can go before 13 if you like, but (laughs) you know, this very special event happened to you when you were 13 that, that leads you to an adult adventure in California with the uh, the Academy, uh, the film Academy. And uh, (laughs) so what's, tell me all about that. Well, uh, 13 was my bar mitzvah, but I think you're telling me when I was 14, when I was 14 living in Toronto, total Beatle freak. And the context is the Beatles were at the beginning of recording Abbey road, their swan song. There was a rumor that John Lennon and Yoko Ono were spotted at the Toronto airport on a Sunday night. And I, immediately went to work on planning on going to the hotel that I thought they would stay at, which was the King Edward Hotel, where the Beatles had stayed before um, when they were on tour. And uh, the next morning, uh, I went to the King Edward Hotel at 7 in the morning. Um, This is May 1969. And uh, went to the top floor, knocked on every door, woke up a lot of people, and a cleaning lady said to me at one point, you're looking for the Beatle? I said, I am. He's in room, whatever. Don't tell anyone I told you. I went down a few floors, uh, got out of the elevator, turned uh, onto the corridor, and I saw a uh, Asian child, about seven or eight years old, lying on her stomach, uh, coloring in a coloring book in front of a closed door. And I recognized her as Yoko Ono's daughter from her first marriage. And I knew I found John Lennon. Because, of course, unfit parents would leave their child outside <laughs> the door. Yeah, well, you know, it was a different time, I guess. Oh, yeah, it certainly was. The, <laughs> and so what did you do? Did you, did you approach the door? Well, uh, I was, um, you know, I always uh, describe it uh, to the scene in The First Godfather where Al Pacino has decided to uh, to kill the, the uh, bad cop and that other mobster having nothing to do with me wanting to kill anybody. But the scene where he's in the restaurant and then he has to go to the bathroom to find the gun that was taped there. And he comes out and he isn't even, the other guy's talking in Italian. He doesn't really pay attention, but you can see he's thinking of what he's got to do. And the subway sound is going on and his heart is beating and he's sweating and then ultimately he does it. It was that kind of a feeling where, you know, I knew I had to do something. The opportunity was there. Um, and I, I said something to Kyoko. I, I probably said something like, is your mom in there? And she said, yeah. And she clearly didn't want to talk to me. So I just stood there. At some point, I may have been standing there 15, 20 minutes. At some point, uh, I think it was a CBC cameraman and a reporter um, uh, came down the hall, knocked on the door. It opened up a couple of inches. They said, CBC. It opened up a bit more. They went in. The door closed. <laughs> and I stood there, and my heart was beating faster and faster another 15 minutes. And then I knocked on the door. Uh, it opened up a little. Canadian news. It opened up a bit more, and I just barged in, staring at my feet as I was walking down a hall. I didn't look up. Um, and then I see a tripod. 
I sit down, I look up, and John and Yoko are sitting on a couch about four feet in front of me in the middle of an interview. And he laughed. And Derek Taylor, who was the Beatles PR guy at the time, was uh, in one side of the room and started walking towards me. And John waved him back. Basically, it's okay. <laughs> and uh, that's how I saw him. And uh, continue with the, the story, I thought, okay, I got to look like a reporter because that was the whole guys that I uh, that I came up with. I had my sister's lousy Kodak camera that hung down your um, your neck and you had to lift up a visor and look down into it. I had my brother's Super 8 camera. I didn't know how to operate any of these things. I didn't know if there was film in either of them. Um, I just took them out of their rooms. No one knew. I didn't tell anyone I was doing this. Um, so I pretended I was a reporter and started taking footage. Um, lucky me, there was film in it and uh, I ended up taking pictures and uh, the craziest super eight you could ever see i'm zooming in and out of john's face nyoko's face while they're on this other interview and ultimately i had to sit down i waited for the interview to be over and then i came up and john yoko was still sitting there and um i had the infamous two virgins album john yoko naked on the front and the back i was one of the few people in canada to have it because i would stake out sam the record man on young street uh, when there was a new Beatle release, I would call up Capitol Records, bug them every day. When is the truck leaving? Do you have this, that, or whatever? And I'd be in the alleyway behind Sam the Record Man waiting for the Capitol Records truck. Um, the Two Virgins album came. Uh, they unloaded the boxes at the back of the store. The guys knew me there already as this nutty kid who would get the stuff. They opened it. They gave me an album with John Yoko naked. I went to the front, paid for it. As I was paying for it, the cops came in and confiscated all of them. So, and then ultimately they re-released it with brown paper on it and just a, you could see their faces. So I, I, I showed him that and that really buzzed him. He says, oh, how did you get that? I thought the Mounties came in and took them all. Um, and I explained it to him. So had I brought Sergeant Pepper or something like that, he would have thought, oh, great, another you know, fucking, you know, Beatle fan or something. Um, so he drew a picture of him and Yoko and said, um, love from John Yoko, peace man, and Yoko signed it. And we chatted for a bit. And then uh, um, Derek Taylor came in the room and uh, there were one or two other people in the room at the time. And he said, uh, everybody's got to leave. Uh, John Yoko have to go to the airport to customs and clear up some stuff. So they cleared the room, people left. And I took my sweet time and John Yoko went to their room, the bathroom or whatever. And I took the long way out of the suite and passed by the bedroom. And John Lennon by himself was in the bedroom trying to push up this heavy British sea chest onto his bed without a lot of success. And he says, hey, lad, come here, give me a hand. So I went in there. And I mean, you know, when I, I told this story a million times. And every time I tell it, like, there's something like this that I, like, wow, this really happened. Anyways, I'm nose to nose with John Lennon, my hero, and I'm pushing this up with him. And as we're pushing it, uh, I said, hey, John, can I come back later with a tape recorder and do an interview about peace and take it to my school? Yeah, great idea. Yoko, Derek. And they come in and there's this 14 year old in the bedroom uh, with John. 
And he says, kid's got a good idea. You know, do an interview about peace and he'll take it to school. That's why we're doing it. And Yoko said, yeah, that's great. Uh, Derek, set it up with him. And I walk out um, and Derek Taylor walks me out and says, uh, um, it would be good if you come back at 6 p.m. And I said, okay, thank you. And I floated out of the room. The same day, you're going to come back the same day yeah. at 6 p.m. So at this point, it's we're probably talking 1 p.m. or something like that. So I, I, left, uh, I left the hotel. I floated out, floated out, went first to my, uh, my mother's work. She worked in a kosher chicken uh, butcher shop around Bathurst and Eglinton in Toronto. And it's one o'clock on a Monday. I walk in and I'm nuts. I'm like screaming, yelling. I just saw John Lennon. I'm holding the Two Virgins album. And there are a lot of Jewish women in the store buying chicken. And the butcher comes, my mother's shrieking, you know, thinking uh, like, what, 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 why come you not in school? Or the butcher comes out. And he sees I'm waving this thing. He says, put that away. That's pornography. And I said, well, what about that? He had a calendar with a, a girly pinup thing on, on the wall. I said, what's that? That's art. That's pornography. <laughs> Anyways, I'm I, yep, telling my mother, rambling this. And, you know, in those days, you know, there were all these news reports about kids, you know, dropping acid and jumping out of a building and pretending they were Superman or something. So parents were like freaked about all that stuff and i i totally wasn't a druggie i just did hallucinogenic things anyways uh i i left she said go back to school i went to to my school dufferin heights junior high school it was a middle school it was recess at the time there were kids out and i'm waving this album saying i just met john lennon all the rest of it the girls believed me the boys didn't believe me uh i created pandemonium the vice principal came out, um, asked me what was going on, and I showed him the album. Uh, and in retrospect, he made the coolest judgment. He said, he, in his mind, he thought either the kid's telling the truth or he's on drugs or nuts. And he said, you know what? Go home. And I went home and I crashed. Um, and I woke up in a, in a, in a cool sweat. And I realized I didn't have a tape recorder. So I called up Chum, which was really the only game in town back in 1969. There was Chum AM and Chum FM. So what time of the day is this? This is around, I would guess it's now around three or four. Okay. And, um, and I had never been as exhausted in my life, like mentally exhausted. I, and by now, up until then, it was still just a rumor that he was in town. By then, it was confirmed that John Yoko were in Toronto. And were they going to do a bet-in in Toronto? Um, and keep in mind, John Lennon had not been on North American soil for about two years. And he couldn't get into the United States because of the, the, the marijuana drug bust thing, which is why he came to Canada. Um, so I called up Chum, the newsroom, and I said, Hi, I've got an exclusive with John Lennon at 6 p.m. and the guy said yeah right and I call up the King Edward Hotel ask for Derek Taylor and here's my number and call me back and even up until then I thought part of my mind was what oh, did did John just sort of did they just put me off just to get rid of me and is this really gonna happen he calls back and he's my best friend 
And he said, yeah, we just spoke to, just spoke to Derek. Great. What, 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 what would you like? He said, look, I don't have a tape recorder. If you have someone there with a tape recorder to set it up, you can use it for the news tonight. And he said, no problem. We're going to have someone there around 530. He'll be in the bar at the King Edward Hotel. Great. I then, I don't know what I did, but I started getting ready. And um, I lived in North Toronto at the time. Uh, and it was like a 30-minute bus drive, maybe even more, because they stopped all the time uh, to downtown Toronto. Um, and uh, I got on the bus. And again, in those days, there would be newspaper boxes uh, at every bus stop. And there would be a morning edition an afternoon edition, and an evening edition. Um, in the morning, there was nothing about John Yoko, and I don't think there was anything in the afternoon. But now every stop, front page, Toronto Star, the defunct Toronto Telegram, um, um, the Globe and Mail, full page picture, John and Yoko, John Lennon and Yoko Ono in Toronto type of thing. So every stop, I'm looking at this, you know, so it was like every like three, four, five minutes, again, another uh, bolt into reality that that's where I was headed. Got down to uh, downtown Toronto, uh, King and probably Young is where I got off. Street was barricaded. There were Mounties everywhere. There were Toronto cops, um, tons of kids, pandemonium in the street. I somehow snuck through the crowd and the cops and got in. Um, the front door and the bar at the King Edward and it's still the same uh, uh, setup was you walk in right to the left I go in and I see there's this guy at the bar and there was like this big tape recorder thing I go up to him and I said you from Chum and he looks at me and I think he was a, a, a DJ I think he was a Chum FM DJ um, and he said you're the kid and I said yeah all right and then it was like just this weird look on his face. We get in the elevator. We get up to whatever floor it was. Uh, the doors open up. I, I bounce out, and this big cop put his palm, his hands were out in his palms, shoved my chest, and I fell into the elevator. And the, uh, the chum guy said, no, no, he's with me. We're, we have an interview. Here's, and he showed his press pass or whatever. We go out. As we go out, believe it or not, there was uh, there were ropes and there were kids lined up on this floor of the King Edward Hotel. Um, the fact that they even let them up there, yeah. But I guess they just got there somehow, and then cops were there just to try to keep them uh, at bay. And then we turned left or whatever, and the corridor leading up to the suite, there were chairs, single files with reporters, the bulk of whom were from New York, because. Um, Everybody was waiting, the Americans particularly, were waiting for the Beatles to say something about the war in Vietnam. And they knew if anyone was going to say it, it would be John Lennon. And he had just done the bed-in for peace in Amsterdam a few months before. Um, so uh, I start walking past, and one reporter grabbed me, and he said, where are you going? And I said, I have an interview at six. And it was like literally six and he said, so yeah, like, like the rest of us, the door opened up. It was Derek Taylor. Where is the lad? I put my hand up and I walked in. And as I walked in, you know, I could, this is my memory, whether I've imagined it or not, but I'm sure it was true. In unison, you know, the, the heads of 
every one of those reporters were just like looking at me going into this room because none of them got in ultimately. Oh, really? They didn't get it. They see, were, I always imagine them when you, you've told me this story before, of course, and I, I always imagine them with the fedoras on and a little press <laughs> to the side and the side of their hats. Uh, I don't really remember it that way. It was more just scruffy guys with, you know, lousy, uh, you know, jackets or something. I go in. There is nobody in the room other than a Capitol Records rep and who I'd seen in the morning and Derek Taylor. And he led me to the, so we're in the living room of the suite. He led me to the couch that John Yoko had been sitting at before. And uh, he said, all right, you can set up. Um, John Yoko, just get him dressed. They'll be out momentarily. And the chum guy was setting up the, the recorder. And in a corner of the suite was a children's record player. And there was a 45 single playing on repeat. And it was clear to me that it was a Beatles song. Because if you were a Beatles fan, you could recognize the second a Beatle, new Beatles song came on. The voices or the sound or whatever. And within moments, John and Yoko came in. They sat down. Um, John uh, said, hey, you want a photo? And I said, Sure. It was either Yoko or the, the chum guy. I think it was Yoko because I've talked to Yoko about that <laughs> since. But anyways, takes a photo of me and John. And then before I start, I said, is that a new Beatle record? He says, yeah, it's the Ballad of John Yoko coming out in a couple weeks. So I heard the Ballad of John Yoko for the first time in front of John Lennon. Wow. Okay. That's uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Anyways. <laughs> and then he said... Um, and you still ask, have that. You still have that photo. Yeah. And that photo, it, I mean, probably taken by Yoko Ono. So it's also a piece of Yoko Ono art. Sure. Exactly. It's a. It's a weirdly. This is why I think it was Yoko because it was a weirdly, weirdly framed photo in a in a performance art kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, and then he says, "Ask away." And it was at that moment only that I realized I hadn't prepared one question. <laughs> That's, that sounds ominously like this podcast. <laughs> also very similar to how you were telling me in university, you'd wait till the last you know, yeah. evening to, to do your essay or whatever. Um, and then I started asking. And the first question that I asked him was, what can we as the young people of Toronto do to help you and Yoko with your peace campaign? In retrospect, it was like, the perfect question because again had i just started talking about the Beatles stuff he would have been pissed off mm -hmm. and that led to a 30 minute interview and you can he even hear at the end he didn't stop it i could have gone for another half an hour or something wow and i realized at one point i gotta you know i can't do this forever right you can't ask that question again yeah but he, even if i had he would he, he would continue um and that leads us to to that. But um, so there you have it. Now, so when you finish, I mean, so many things about this are wild. Like you, at first you heard a rumor. Where'd you hear the rumor? Was it on a radio? It was, I was taking a shower Sunday night and I had my brother's like big radio in there and I was listening to Chum FM, which is all I listened to. And uh, they were playing. And in those days, Chum FM, you know, they're 
you know, the DJ would say, all right, now we're going to play uh, 30 minutes, uh, no ads, uh, songs that have the word blue in it. This is Chum FM. <laughs> and there'd be like, you know, love is blue. Well, it was Chum FM, so it would be some acid kind of song. Um, and the only commercials were for like the drug, the Toronto Drug Free Clinic, <laughs> uh, you know, like some clothing. And Media One Stop. Go to Media One Stop. They got groovy clothes there. Okay, now we're going to do songs for 30 minutes with the number two in it. <laughs> you know. Anyways, listening to the music in the shower and after some song, uh, the DJ says, someone called in. And you could call in like, and get the DJ on air. like right. uh, And talk all, to them. And talk to them all, all, all the time. And he said... Um, um, someone called in to say they uh, thought they spotted John and Yoko at the uh, airport. Wow, 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 that'd be great. We're going to try to check on that. And in the meantime, here's whatever, you know, the Beatles song came on. And that, that's, that's how I knew. So I, you know, went into my room and started calling hotels. Right. You know, the Royal York Hotel. Hello, is John Lennon there? Well, check. You know, another hotel. Um, no, there's no Jane, John Lennon here. Called up the King Edward and they hung up on me. Wow. And, um, you know, I subsequently learned that from a Beatle historian, believe it or not, that the only, the Beatles, when they were together and on their tours, only stayed one night overnight in Canada. And it was at the King Edward Hotel. Oh, it was. Other, other times they were here they didn't stay overnight they went to new york or wherever i had always heard that they stayed at the uh when they played at maple leaf gardens they had stayed at the um uh the, i think it was called the seahorse motel on the off the gardner <laughs> expressway and someone had told a beatles a super fan had told me that there was a famous letter to the promoters of the show saying from brian epstein saying that he they loved uh toronto and they loved the show and uh, but uh, could they please stay at a different hotel next time they came to Toronto? <laughs> but I guess that wasn't true. Well, well, you know what? Maybe it is. Uh, look, I, I've this much I've 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 experienced over the years. Uh, sometimes there's a fact that you think is is right and might not be right. I doesn't like, does, I like my story. Well, your story might be right, but it didn't mean they didn't they didn't have hotel bookings. Oh yeah, but true. the only overnight mm. was at the King Edward Hotel. That's that's what the guy. Mm. the historian said well, that's cool and then so i i also another thing in that story that i like a lot is that the chum fm recordist dj whoever he was sitting in a bar somewhere <laughs> right. at the king edward hotel probably having a scotch while waiting for you you right. know it was, i mean it was five o'clock probably when he got there it was a pretty exciting time to have a scotch right, right. At the king edward right. and he could have expensed it if they <laughs> if they did expensing that right. and then the the kid comes in that he can't believe is happening. He goes up. He he also has a story of meeting John Lennon and Yoko Ono and recording this famous interview. Right. And then he he goes home and he tells people and no one believes him that he, that happened to him. But but he's having another scotch. And then many years later, this interview that he recorded gets nominated for an Academy Award. <laughs> now he's not credited, is he? <laughs> No, but I mean, he just turned on the the tape. Yeah, I mean, I did that too here, but this is magic that we're making. <laughs> well, you know, here the, what's even more incredible about that, and I was cognizant of this at the time, 
he didn't ask any questions. He, no. no one told him he couldn't say anything, but he was so mesmerized right. by this. And the dynamic between John and, and me, you, you can hear it. John's just talking to a kid. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm saying some great things, some really cool questions, and some pretty stupid, you know, kid questions. And you can hear John just saying, oh, you know, like I, I would say, you know, um, I, uh, the White Album, I think the, the side one is about peace, side two is about whatever. And I'm like a typical Beatle freak trying to find meaning in this. And he says, no, we're just four guys. I wake up in the morning, try to touch me toes, you know, I have a coffee, I write a song. It's about me, my life. Or That's all it is. We're four guys. And he keeps talking to me like that. This DJ, or whoever he was, doesn't ask one question, even afterwards. And you can hear it on the tape. Not, not one bloody question. So if anything, he probably was kicking himself every single day mm-hmm. till now, if he's still alive, God bless him, saying, why didn't I ask a fucking question? And what Chum did, he leaves with the tape, with your tape. With my tape. And in those days, you don't have instant, you know, photos or anything. It would take a couple of weeks to get something developed. So nobody believed me that I, that I did this. And they take the tape. And that night, and the Chum News on AM and even FM would come on every 15 minutes. Here is a Chum, like whatever. And it was John, uh, uh, Chum News asked John Lennon what kids should do for peace. Well, you can go to school for peace. They completely cut out my voice. Wow. Um, and this went on for a week because it was such huge news, right? Yeah. And they milked that for a week. And I kept calling, asking for the tape because I didn't tell them you can keep the tape. Right. You said you could use it you on the use news. use it on the news. I kept calling. They wouldn't answer my call. The guy wouldn't answer my calls, whoever I was calling or whatever. And one day I showed up at Chum. And those days, they're, they're, uh, I guess if this podcast goes to Sri Lanka, they wouldn't know what I'm talking about. But, but uh, I, on Young Street, around Young and Summerhill, was the Chum, the iconic Chum sign and yeah. whatever. And I went in there and I started shrieking. And said, you have my tape with John Lennon and some receptionist, whatever, yelling. And I was like crying and just saying, I want my tape. I'm going to call the police. Like just yelling and screaming. And then finally, somebody came out and just gave it to me. Really? Yeah. And that's how I got the tape. And then ultimately, when photos were developed, it was clear that I met John Lennon. And I now had the tape. Wow. I mean, all of the stuff that leads into, like your whole day. Everything that happens is actually unbelievable yeah. that you thought of the next thing to do. Right. I mean, like here you're, you're at the butcher shop with your two virgins yeah. album in the middle of it. And, and you think to call Chum that you, you know, you barely know who you're talking to. You just, but you trust them because you listen to them. They're the voice right. of music for you. Right. And right. that's why you call them. And then you, um, you find yourself back there and you don't really know how to get your property because it's sort of is it even your property because it's theirs i'm not not even think about well it really isn't theirs but but i'm i'm not even thinking about it i'm a kid yeah and you're you're more driven by you want your proof yeah i want my proof and i i want it it's me talking to john they they didn't play the whole 30 minute interview they just picked and cherry picked it if they had really been smart they would have played the whole interview 
because that would have been amazing. Listening to a kid, like listening, a, a member of their audience who's 14 years old talking to John Lennon is riveting drama, yeah. Yeah. right? Chum News asking, John, not actually asking John something and taking credit for a 14 year old's idea right. is not that exciting. Right. No, exactly. And he was doing, and the next day for a week in Montreal, he did a million interviews, right? Right. Right. But, uh, the legs on my experience and this tape um, is incredible. Um, the British Museum, which is the main museum in, um, uh, in London and then in various cities in Britain, um, a few years ago archived my tape as being the most or one of the most important um, interviews with John Lennon for that very reason, that it's a, a 14 year old kid, it's not a media thing, and just a 30 minute interview um, where John is talking to a Beatle fan in a very lucid, cool way, both sides. Um, it's just seen as rather historic. The Guggenheim Museum, believe it or not, they had this big thing with YouTube about seven, eight years ago uh, where uh, I'm at the Walrus, which is the name of a short film that I uh, that I did about it, and, and name name my book was inducted into the first. And I don't think they ever did it again. Um, installation of they selected they had this huge international jury with great filmmakers and Darren Aronofsky and a bunch of other people who uh, went over something like thirty thousand YouTube videos and selected something like I can't remember now five, six, seven videos as being um, examples of the new art form. Um, and they were permanently installed at Guggenheim. I mean, it's, it's all over the place, but for that very reason, that it was John talking to a kid. Well, let's, I mean, we should talk about the film, the Academy Award-nominated film a little bit. Do, do you have a clip from it? Sure. Here we go, a random clip. I just randomly picked that clip, but one of my favorite things about this is I diss George Harrison to John Lennon. <laughs> and what is his Instead of saying, oh, get the hell out of it, what does he say? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm not too keen on George. I like him and stuff, so, um, but I'm not too keen on him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And it's 1969. That's 1969. Right. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that. so anyway, so you sit on this for 30 years. You tell all your friends. You prove to everyone you met John Lennon. And you sit on it for 30 years. Well, you know, the, the reality is, it's not like I really showcased it. It, it was a, such a personal experience to right. me that I kept all my stuff in this yellow box that I still have, like a cardboard box. Um, and it was just so personal. And then particularly when John was shot, it was like just such a heavy thing. And, um, you know, from time to time, people knew about the experience. From time to time, I would get a call from some media outlet uh, around the world around the anniversary of his death, um, you know, to talk about it. And I would do some interviews here and there. And every now and then I would get somebody who wanted to buy the stuff, turn it into a doc. The CBC literally, <laughs> literally every three years, I get some call. This even goes back before email. I get some call from somebody. Oh, hi, I'm uh, from the CBC. And, uh, you know, have you ever thought of, I know of your story, John, have you ever thought of doing, uh, you know, some documentary or something like that? Well, you know, uh, uh, somebody from the CBC called me two years ago. But, well, would you be interested in meeting? Yeah, I'd meet, and it would be in CBC land for, like, you know, a gazillion years or whatever. And other people, at one point, HBO, in the first few years of HBO starting, I got a random, like, letter or something asking that, we could talk about and at some point somebody wanted to buy something do something and I just was never comfortable so like you say I just sat on it for a while and then ultimately I thought you know what uh, I'm just right in the infancy of YouTube I thought you know what I'm gonna do something wacky with it and just dump it onto YouTube and I knew a couple of young uh, artists Toronto artists uh, who had never really made a film before one you know one sort of semi-animated thing or whatever. Uh, I thought, okay, let's do something. Let's edit it down to five minutes, and which we did, and animate it, and we animated it. And uh, I can't even remember where it started circulating, but then we start winning awards at fifth film festivals around the world. The Middle East Film Festival, uh, we won Best, uh, uh, Best Award. It was uh, an Arab fil film festival. I'm a Jewish guy, the guy, like one of the directors, Jewish, we win this award in like, um, I can't remember where it was, but it was, uh, you know, one of the Arab countries, uh, South Korea, we win an award. And then ultimately I get a, a call from uh, the American Film Institute, um, uh, which is pretty big to say that we won Best Animation at the American Film Institute. And I was then told that if you're, if you win uh, the AFI award, you're a shoe-in to be nominated, to be shortlisted for an Oscar. And then ultimately I got a call from Los Angeles and, some, and I could see on the, uh, on, the, uh, on the phone that it was um, Academy of Arts and Sciences. Uh, Mr. Levitan? Yes, uh, this is so-and-so from the Academy of Arts. Yes. Well, we're telling you, and you have to keep this confidential because it could uh, prejudice uh, what happens afterwards, but you've been shortlisted for uh, an Academy Award nomination. And I said, get the fuck out of town. He said, no, no, that's uh, actually actually quite true. And I <laughs> said, and how many are shortlisted? Ten. And then ultimately you pick five, right, to be nominated. Yes. And I said, you're telling me that I have a 50% chance of being nominated for an Oscar. Well, that is correct. And I said, whoa, that's <laughs> crazy. And then ultimately went to the Oscars and didn't win. But um, we were actually the odds on favorite, like Entertainment Weekly, you know, like put it at that. And uh, 
And then the next day, to you know, the story keeps going. The next day, I get a call from HarperCollins, the biggest publisher in the world, saying from a VP there, saying, we want to do a book deal with you. When can you come to New York? Went to New York within, I guess, a few days or something. Did a book, a major book. It was a bestseller in Canada and a few other places. And um, and then I, one day I get a call from the Emmys. And uh, it was a few, a couple, a year, maybe later, two years later, um, the guy said, uh, hi, Jerry, just wanted you to know that I'm from the Emmys and we love your film. And um, uh, is there a reason why you didn't submit it? And I said, I I didn't know I could submit it. Yeah, you can. And, you know, if I were you, I'd submit it right now because I can tell you um, we'd love to have you nominated. So I submitted it and I went down to, for the Emmy Awards uh, uh, to L.A. and we won. So I have an Emmy for Oh, so too. you did win an Emmy for it. So, yeah. but, but you didn't win the Oscar. That's too no. bad because I could totally see you uh, winning a Grammy. Because then you'd have the egot, right? So uh, yeah. you're, you know, not very many people have that. I mean, you're you're already on your way to egot nominee territory. <laughs> well, I could have been nominated. I could have turned it into a musical and well, maybe you, got a Tony. Yeah, so you get the Tony, and then you're. <laughs> I mean, it could be a musical easily, right? Totally. Well, the Tony does. Does they have to be musicals in the Tony? It could just uh, be a dramatic oh, play. Right. No, you're right. If I, if I, you're absolutely correct. It didn't have to be musical. Yeah. It could have been just a play. You just because you're stuck on Annie and Ooh. things like that. Yeah. Let's say that this is the play, and I'll see if I can get us uh, nominated. I, it seems it seems like you're a shoe in for that. So let's talk about the rest of your life because, like, okay, so you peak at 14. <laughs> right. That's big. Well, deal. presumably, but then ultimately. It kept going. Right. It kept going. Well, it went for a lot. Actually, you peaked much later, really, because right. it was the beginning of the peak. It just kept going. Right. right. But, the, but then the thing is, you don't go on to be an interviewer. You don't get a job at Chum FM. Like a lot of that, that might have been where someone would go, right? right. Or, right. or get a job working for John Lennon even or something, right? right? But so you don't do any of those things. You go to law school. Right. Well, my hero was Pierre Trudeau, one of my heroes, and I, th I wanted to go into politics. So I thought, well, to go into politics, I should probably... Um, become a lawyer and ultimately that was sort of I was gearing towards that almost ran for the Liberal Party a few times um, became friends with Pierre Trudeau who was going to help me had some people uh, who were going to uh, help me and this was when he was already out of office um, met with Paul Martin before he became uh, leader of the Liberal Party and he was in charge of trying to find candidates um, and I was going to do that but personal turmoil in my life, you know, divorce, that kind of thing. And uh, each time I was going to run, you can't run for politics uh, if your family life is unstable and you've got young kids or you're an asshole, you know, <laughs> and you don't give a shit. Um, so that uh, didn't happen. So uh, there, there I was. But, you know, the same time I, I, uh, I started doing the John Lennon film, not knowing where it was going to go, I started doing children music. And, mm -hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's around when I met you, basically. It was yeah. that, 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 that uh, uh, a creative nucleus in your life. And right. I met you, and, and then you had transitioned. You were a litigation lawyer. Were you first yeah. litigation lawyer? Yeah. And then you, you do uh, restaurants, liquor licenses, yeah. things like yeah. that now. And you were, I was booking the Drake Hotel, booking the bands, <laughs> and uh, the owner of the Drake Hotel, Jeff Stober, had invited us to a dinner right. uh, on the roof and sat us next to each other, and we became fast friends. And yeah. you, you told me about having a, that you're a children's artist. Yeah, and I gave you my first CD, yeah. right? Yeah. And then you called me for lunch or coffee a, a week later or something like that, 
you said you heard the CD. It's it's great. And why don't we have a coffee or something? Go to have a coffee at the Drake. And I, I remember. <laughs> I remember you saying to me, well, you know, we should do things every Saturday, like family stuff, and you can come with your band and do something. I said, but I don't have a band. And then you said, well, so get one. <laughs> and and then I said, I, you know, I don't know about every Saturday or, or whatever, because, you know, I, I other that things been hard. to do. Yeah, and I, I don't think that Drake was prepared to pay en- enough to pay one of my band members, let alone... Anything else? But um, and then because of you, I I I put a band together, and the rest is music history. Right. And 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 you met your new partner uh, doing that, didn't you? Is that how you met her? I I did. I, like every time I would do a show, I would think, okay, how do I make it wilder? Right. Then so, it's Sir Jerry. So if you want to look it up, Sir Dash Jerry with a J dot com. Um, and I was a I'm this faux British sort of vaudevillian entertainer with a cool uh, band. And I have a little person who's my Uncle Alfie who wears a bowler. I have a manservant, Melman. And uh, every now and then, and my drummer's a gorilla. And every now and then uh, I would think, okay, I want, I want to add something. At one point I wanted to add ballerinas. And I had bumped into someone who was... Partners, this uh, was partners with my now partner uh, Anissa, and she was a ballerina, and they were did some dance stuff together. And uh, next thing I know, I have ballerinas, and ultimately, love sprung eternal. Right, and you continue taking the message of peace to the kids of the world with through Sir Jerry. I mean, that's, you're that's still right. continuing on that, that, that exact path. That's right. I, I had a hip replacement a few years ago. So Sir Jerry had surgery. <laughs> so surgery. So something increasingly, I think I'm going to morph Sir Jerry into surgery. Uh, you, and, and you all, you also have a million other great stories, but there is one good story from the litigation days of George Oliver. And, uh, and not George oh, Oliver, not George, uh, George Oliver's uh, a musician. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, Russell Oliver. Russell Oliver, Cashman. Yeah. Cashman. Yeah, no, he was. Oh man, I haven't seen him in a few years, but what a colorful character! He was sued by Time Warner um, um, because he had a commercial where he was uh, flying around as sort of Superman, but he didn't look like Superman. And some other law firm. Uh, 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 had the case, and then ultimately he wasn't comfortable with, uh, with uh, you know, paying a lot of money to Time Warner or whatever. So ultimately, I put in a defense, and uh, it settled in a, in a way that made everybody happy, particularly him. And I remember when I put my defense in, uh, you know, I had to, in, in, in a legal proceeding, you know, there's a statement of claim where they list why they think you did something wrong. In defense, you have to respond to it. So in my response, I said, Cashman is not like Superman for the following reasons. A, Cashman has never um, dated Lois Lane, Lana Lang, or Lori Lamaris, the fish girl. Uh, B, Cashman is not uh, vulnerable to any form of kryptonite, green, gold, yellow, or red. And I just went down. Cashman has no need. uh, So uh, Cashman... Um, cannot compress charcoal and create diamonds with super strength, as he is a middle-aged Jewish, uh, whatever, you know, stuff like that. And it created a lot of publicity that wasn't, you know, great for Time Warner. And then ultimately, 
we resolved it. <laughs> it was it was a fun case. It was a fun case. Yeah, I mean that's one of, that's like that's one of the that's like uh, Perry Mason litigation yeah, type, yeah, type yeah, stuff. Yeah. If Perry Mason right. had been a litigator, right, right. Um, well, that's I mean those are amazing stories. It's like it's funny because you have so many fun and fantastic stories, and and you've lived them all through your life with uh, that same attitude that the fourteen year old boy had. You know, like you wanted to get it done, uh, that you were happy about it, that you had a smile on your face, and you were laughing. Yeah. Th- those things are all, all all the way through every one of the stories you've ever told me. Oh, thanks. Well, well, you know, here, here's the thing. So many times when I would do uh, an interview, and when I do an interview about the story, or or someone asks me about it, invariably they say, "Wow, you got yeah, such balls or whatever." It's never how I saw it. It wasn't like I I, I was a lonely kid, a loner of a kid. I didn't play sports, you know, I was asthmatic, thick glasses, um, you know, I didn't date girls. I started to date them immediately after I met John <laughs> Lennon. I'm serious. I lost my virginity within weeks uh, of that. I didn't even know what losing your virginity was. Um, and it was just, I loved the Beatles so much that it was just like, well, how, John Lennon is in Toronto, I, I've got to see him, not just to have a photo of him, not have him sign anything, but to actually touch him, com- mm-hmm. like engage, engage with him. Help him with his luggage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that, that's the bottom line. And one of the wackiest things, I'm still in touch with Yoko Ono yeah. since then. And she has many times, but it also she uh, um, just gratuitously sent a quote to HarperCollins when they published my book um, about, it's at the, the back of my book that's uh, something like that she remembers very fondly how um, John and her had met me and John and her thought I was this, you know, smart, courageous kid who beat the media and, you know, it was a very sweet thing. And, and she invited me once. I was in New York and her lawyer knew I was in New York. Um, I was talking to this is about four years ago. And uh, I said, oh, by the way, just uh, tell Yoko if you're talking to her. Um, I said, hi. And he called me right back and said, um, are you doing anything for lunch tomorrow? And I said, no, well, Yoko would like you to come by the Dakota wow. and have lunch. And I said, get out. And, I said, and he says, no, seriously. And I said, like, you know, I think I'm a nice guy, but like, like, why on earth would she do that? And he says, I'll tell you why. Because everybody, including famous people, people that she knows, uh, whenever they send a message, it isn't to say hi, it's hi, and can you do this or whatever, and you didn't ask for anything. So she's inviting you to come up. And I went to the Dakota where she lived with John, and we we chatted in the living room. The Imagine piano was in the corner. Wow. Um, and then, you know, she offered to make me lunch. Stupidly, I, I said, no, I'm not hungry, but she made me tea. We sat at the kitchen table where john would bake bread you know in the latter years of his life and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff and anyway well you uh, and she recently invited you to participate in an art project yeah she she asked that uh, there was a, a, a montreal major montreal exhibit on her life's work and part of that uh involved the 50th anniversary of the bed in which was in montreal and uh she uh wanted me to be part of it in a in a relatively significant way because I contextualize it, even though I wasn't in Montreal, uh, but I contextualize it well. And they had a lot of my stuff there. There was an interview they did with me that 
the, specifically for that and they had photos and things and yeah no it's like you know it's it's crazy after all these years you know that uh and she i did a film with her a short animated film with her uh, about five or six years ago where i took a short a piece of prose that she had and we animated it called uh, my hometown so if you google youtube search um my hometown yokona you get to see it and she recorded she read the piece and she let me use john lennon's strumming of the guitar that was uh, used as the backdrop to the B-side to Give Peace a Chance, which was Yoko singing um, um, Remember Love. She let me use that as the soundtrack to it. So she's been a very supportive, I don't ask for a lot, but a very supportive, uh, incredible person. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. Um, I think we're going to end it here, Jerry. Does that sound good to you? Well, I want to keep talking. So, uh, well, we can, can keep I talking. keep talking? Uh, you can right. keep talking. I'll just fade you out. But, uh, but so, sir-jerry.com. Yeah. I Met the Walrus is right. the book, the movie. How, can you get the movie? Is there a way of buying or getting obtaining the uh, movie? You know what? It's a good question. I have a feeling it's on you uh, on uh, iTunes. Oh, the, the the whole thing is on iTunes. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's just a five minute short. So, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm happy for people to buy, but. You might as well just look at it on YouTube. Right. You know? Okay, cool. And then, uh, and so the book, the, the movie. The book actually has a CD. Do people use CDs? Or it might be a DVD. At the back of the book has the full 30-minute interview and my photos and other stuff. So, Is there an audio book of that book? I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so that's a lot of stuff. So people yeah. can, in, it can engage with you in that way. Sure. Or listen to the podcast again. Yeah. Okay. I'm Jeff Rogers. This is the most interesting people in the world. That was Jerry Levitan, who is certainly one of the most interesting people in the world. The second person I've had on the podcast with Beatles stories. So obviously we know having the Beatles involved makes you more <laughs> interesting. Uh, there's a Corky Lang from the band Mountain told me a story that, um, that uh, Levon Helm had said to him and uh, he was getting hired to play for uh, Ringo Starr and the Ringo Starr All-Stars. And uh, Corky said, are you going to do it? He said, well, you know, I... I, uh, I find that when there's a beetle involved, it's a financial heyday. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all we got for now. All right. Thank uh, you. Thank you.